Okay, 1 Kings 20, we're going to be taking a break from Elijah this week, but not from King Ahab. We're not going to get off that, the hook that easy. By the way, Elijah is not retired from the ministry, and the Lord has not fired him as of yet. So he's going to appear again in chapter 21. You'll see him again after that as well. But tonight our focus is not going to be on Elijah and the Lord as it was 1 Kings 19. It's going to be on Ahab and the Lord. Now, so far, Ahab has not acknowledged that the Lord is God. You've seen that again and again. He has not confessed um, God as his Lord. He's confessed Baal. Baal is his God. He worships Baal. But a major theme has been running through these chapters from chapter 17 on, and we could even say chapter 16 in contrast, is the theme that the Lord is God. You see it again and again. Look at chapter 18, verse 21. 1821, so Ahab sent a message among the sons of all, I'm sorry, Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. Look at verse 36. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel. Look at verse 37. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. Verse 39, after the fire fell, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The people, in general, acknowledged that the Lord was God. However, Ahab and Jezebel never get around to acknowledging that. So the theme of Yahweh's lordship is, you see this. But it continues in chapter 20 as well. Look at verse 13 of chapter 20. Twice it refers to this in this chapter. Verse 13, Behold, a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver them into your hand today. And what? You shall know that I am the Lord. Look at verse 28. Then a man of God came near and spoke to the king of Israel, Ahab again, and said, Thus says the Lord. Because the Arameans have said, the Lord is the God of the mountains, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Again, we see this. The message is clear. Ahab is to confess and, and, uh, that the Lord is God. He's to confess this. Now, in 1 Kings 20, Ahab is going to receive three messages from three prophetic visits. And uh, he is going to, and in and, and their fulfillment, we're going to see that the Lord is God as a result of these three messages. The first message concerns God's amazing grace. Concerns God's amazing grace. The first 22 verses of, uh, the, of uh, the chapter, Stephen read those. I'm not going to reread these chapters. You're probably wondering, how are we talking about God's amazing grace in this chapter? Well, we'll see. Ahab is in serious trouble, as Stephen read about this. Aram, or Syria with a S, Scott, not an A at the beginning of it. A, Aram, is an old enemy of Israel. They are led by their king, Ben-Hadad. And in all likelihood, this is the son of Ben-Hadad, the Ben-Hadad in chapter 15, who led an invasion into Israel. And now we're going to have another invasion being led into Israel. That's a precursor of what Elijah said in chapter 19, when he said there's going to be judgment one day on Israel from Syria led by a guy named Hazael. That's going to be later on in 2 Kings. Here's a precursor of this. Syria is attacking in the very next chapter. And uh, so it's already started. But Ben-Hadad has a distinct military advantage 
over Israel. Why? Well, number one, he's got a massive army. Look at verse 1, chapter 20, verse 1. Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all his army, and there were 32 kings with him. And they had horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and fought against it. 32 kings aligned with Ahab. Now, that's many could be minor chieftains and uh, small city-states or nations, that kind of thing. Nevertheless, 32 kings aligned with him. That's huge support. Verse 13 calls this army a, multitude, a great multitude. Verse 20 says the Aramaeans filled the country. So Ahab, anyway, you look at this, is at a great disadvantage. And then Ben-Hadad has made a great advance into the territory of Israel. And he's come all the way from, from uh, Syria. The capital of Syria is Damascus, about 700 miles northwest of Samaria, the, the present capital in this time of the northern kingdom of Israel. Syria borders Israel. So he just marched down. Into the, into the area, 700 miles or so, into to Samaria. No one stopped him. He's just marched in. The, Israel's defense is weak. You can see they're not strong enough to stop these guys. And now he's besieging Samaria, the capital. He's going for the capital. He's going for the jugular, in other words. And so not only does Ben-Hadad have a distinct military advantage, uh, but he's also highly arrogant on top of that. Now, aside from the fact that's probably his natural disposition anyway, Nevertheless, he's going to, he's pro, he may be using arrogance as a military tactic here in this chapter uh, to intimidate the enemy. That was a great way they used back then uh, to uh, have a tactic against, against, uh, militarily against an enemy, use intimidation. Um, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, used it when he went out. We saw that in Sunday school this morning. Uh, and, and so he's going to intimidate the enemy, Ahab. He makes two demands of Ahab, Ben-Hadad does. His first demands in verses 2 to 4. Look at verse 2. It says, he says, he sent messengers to the city to Ahab, king of Israel. And he said, thus says Ben-Hadad, uh, your silver and your gold are mine. Your most beautiful women, uh, wives and children are mine. The king of Israel replied, it is according to your word, my lord, O king. I'm yours and all that I have. This is a ridiculous demand made by Ben-Hadad, right? Um, and so, uh, and, but, but to show the strength of Ben-Hadad, uh, Ahab doesn't even argue this. He says, okay, you got, what, you got it if, you, if that's what you want. By the way, he even calls him my Lord here, which is an indication that he is the one humbling himself before Ben-Hadad. By the way, I'll tell you something else. He's willing to call Ben-Hadad his Lord, but he never calls Yahweh his Lord. We get the threat. <clears throat> we have the threat of Ben-Hadad, a threat from the outside militarily, and he's willing to say, my Lord, <laughs> to him. But we have God's display of great power that we've seen already. He never, ne- never one time does he say, Yahweh, my Lord. He has greater respect for Ben-Hadad than he does the Lord himself. That's the first demand. Second demand, look at verse 6. About this time tomorrow, Ben-Hadad says, I'm going to send my servants to you, and they will search your house and the houses of your servants. Whatever is desirable, desirable in your eyes, whatever's valuable in your eyes, whatever it is you guys like, they're, they're going to take that in their hand and carry it away. And so the second demand you can sum up is this. On second thought, I'll just take whatever I want. I'll take whatever I want. Well, now things are getting out of hand. And so it's time to call a council. And so he does, has a conference with his elders. Their advice is not to comply with these demands. I'm not reading all these verses because there's 43 verses in the chapter summarizing certain things. Their advice is not to comply with these demands, and so the messengers of Ben-Hadad are sent back 
with that word from, from Ahab to Ben-Hadad, right? And that infuriates Ben-Hadad. He's so mad. Look at verse 10. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, May the gods do so to me, and more also if the dust of Samaria will suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. In other words, that's how you answer me? I'm going to reduce your city to ashes. I'm going to, this, the destruction of your city is going to be so total, there's not even going to be any dust left when I get through with you, is what he says, paraphrased. And he seals that threat by calling down a curse from his gods upon himself. It's like he's swearing that if I don't get the job done, may the gods kill me, do so to me. Well, Ahab replies to that. Now, his answer makes me kind of think that this is a game of poker that's taking place. And he's got a hand, the hand that Ahab's been dealt is to call a bluff, that's all he can do. He knows he's got the weaker army. Look at verse 11. Ahab replies, the king of Israel replied, tell him, tell, a- tell Ben-Hadad, let not him who guards on his armor boast like him who takes it off. In other words, sounds like Proverbs 27.1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth, right? That's true enough, true statement. Elijah, this is probably the greatest statement Ahab's ever said, by the way. Ahab's right in, in one sense. It's foolish to boast about an unknown future. By the way, this statement right here, kind of a proverb Ahab has, what it means is this. He says, the guy who takes off his armor, obviously, he's already fought in the battle. He's still alive. They won the battle. He can brag and boast all he wants. But the guy who's putting on his armor, he's preparing for battle. He doesn't know the outcome of it. So don't boast like the guy who's putting on his armor, like the guy that would take off his armor. And today we would say, don't couch your chickens before they're hatched. So he does this. Verse 12, when Ben-Hadad heard this message as he was drinking with the kings in their temporary shelters, he said to his servants, station yourselves, get ready for the battle. They stationed themselves against the city. Now the kings are with with, the... Aligned with Syria or Aram, they, are, they had to build temporary shelters there because they're far away from their homeland. They're living in these temporary shelters, and they're drinking in these temporary shelters, apparently part of the battle strategy. Let's all drink now. Look at verse 16. They went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the temporary shelters with the 32 kings who helped him. Sounds like they helped him to get drunk more than anything else. So all these leaders, the leaders of the army, are drinking they're drunken. And so this probably went on from morning till noon. And so they're pretty well tanked by noon. And they, uh, by the way, I believe this is part of this, within the scope of God's strategy as well, this drinking that happens. But then something totally surprising happens. Out of the blue, look at verse 13. <clears throat> it says, Now behold, a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, or a prophet drew near I'm going to use that, that literal rendering, drew near for a certain reason, to, the, to Ahab, king of Israel. Now, the word behold there indicates surprise. It's like, why is this prophet here all of a sudden? By the way, no one expects a prophet to speak to Ahab or come near Ahab at all because after Jezebel's threat, what prophet in his right mind is now going to approach Ahab? At least of all does Ahab expect this. But all of a sudden, he's there. Notice these prophets in the Old Testament, they kind of appear. They're kind of just there all of a sudden with a message from God. It says he approached. He came near. Three times in this chapter, it says Ahab uh, had a prophet that came near him. Verse 13, look at verse 22. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel. Look at verse 28. 
Then a man of God came near and spoke to the king of Israel. I emphasize this point, this idea of coming near to Ahab, because it, uh, it's only by God's amazing grace that any prophet would ever go near Ahab. And that's what we're about to witness here, God's amazing grace. This prophet, in verse 13, is unnamed. We don't know who it is. It's not Elijah. Uh, does that mean Elijah is put on the bench and officially washed up as a prophet? No, it does not. Well, we're going to hear from him again. In fact, in chapter 21, we'll hear from him. But it does mean there's a remnant. There is a remnant, and Elijah is not the lone prophet of God. We saw that last week. Chapter 19, God says what? I'm going to reserve to myself how many people? 7,000, right? Who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And this is one of them right here, this unknown, unnamed prophet. So this prophet has a message from God. He has a message from the God that Ahab is constantly trying to provoke. And he says this, thus says the Lord in verse 13. Look at that. Thus says the Lord. By the way, is God given up on Ahab yet? He hasn't given up on him yet. He's still showing grace by allowing him to hear his word. That's amazing. I would have given up on the guy personally. Already, forget it. Uh, you know, with all his shenanigans, but not the God of grace. The God of grace did not give up on him. By the way, if you're, if the Lord is allowing you to hear His word still, you're within listening distance. Be grateful for that. Don't take that for granted. That's the grace of God allowing you to hear His word, and you'd better listen to that word while you have opportunity. Don't be like Ahab and foolish like that. Now, even though the odds are heavily stacked against Ahab. This, uh, the message from the Lord is that he will, look at verse 13, I will deliver them, this army, this great, vast army, I will deliver them into your hand. The word deliver is literally give. I say that for a reason. Uh, it's very important. Uh, it's literally give. I will give them into your hand. Now, this very day he's going to do it. Now, does Ahab deserve that? Does he deserve to have a victory handed to him like that? No way. <clears throat> he's rejected God. He's mock God. He's provoked God. Him and Jezebel both have done it. But the Lord's going to do this. In that verse, 13, three times, uh, the word you or yours in the masculine singular, meaning that this is a message intended directly for Ahab himself. The Lord's going to give you, Ahab, this victory. Ahab in particular is being shown the grace of God. This is amazing. This Baal-worshipping king being shown the grace of God. Why will he do this? Why will the Lord do this? Because look at the end of verse 13. And you, Ahab, singular, you, Ahab, shall know that I am the Lord. This is yet another opportunity for Ahab to turn to respond to the living God. Something he's not done yet. Well, Ahab has some logistical questions about this whole military operation. You say, I'm going to get victory. By whom? Verse 14. Who's going to take charge? Look at verse 14. The prophet says... By the young men of the rulers of the provinces. Those guys, the young men, are going to take charge. The, the word, phrase young men, by the way, I've told you about this before, can be uh, translated, any, there's a range of meanings anywhere from a child all the way to a young man of marriageable age. So this is, these are not old people. These are not experienced people. Whoever they are, they are not experienced in warfare. They're rather inexperienced. And that's the point. The Lord wants it to be this way. He wants to work through guys who are not experienced in warfare to give the victory, to make sure that they know the Lord is giving the victory. Now, there's a second logistical question asked by Ahab. He says, who shall begin the battle? The answer is Ahab, which probably has to do with preparing people for battle. That's what he does. Look at verse 15. 
Then he mustered the young men on the, of the rulers of the provinces, and there were 232. And after them he mustered all the people, even all the sons of Israel, 7,000. Does that number remind you of anything? 7,000. Now, 7,000 troops remind us of the Lord, the, the, the number of people the Lord has for his remnant, right? 7,000. Now, th this is a physical army here, and they fight physical battles, military battles. The, the army of God, the 7,000, fight the spiritual battles of the Lord, right? And these guys aren't the same guy. Now, there may be some in this group that are part of that 7,000 also. But regardless of that, look at the outcome of the battle in verse 20. They killed each his man. The Arameans fled, and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, escaped on a horse with horsemen. King of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and killed the Arameans with a great slaughter. Great victory. The Lord said, I'm going to give you the victory. I'm going to hand it to you. I'm going to give it to you. And he gives them the victory. Another great victory. But it's hardly finished. The victory is hardly finished when the prophet comes back again with another prophetic visitation to Ahab. Verse 22. The prophet came near to the king of Israel. And he said to him, Go strengthen yourself and observe and see what you have to do. For at the turn of the year, the king of Aram will come up against you. Ahab is instructed, better fortify yourself, because in the spring, by the way, the spring is when they went to battle back then. I've also heard that, that there is true. I've heard this from reliable sources that today, in this day's world, people still go to battle in the spring. Military personnel told me that. And uh, what does this show us, though? What does it show us? It show us, uh, shows us that even though God is sovereign, we still have our responsibilities, right? God says, you get ready for the battle that's going to occur in the spring. You get ready for that. We have our role to play, don't we? We always have a role. This is always true in the Bible. Throughout the, every page of Scripture, you see hand in hand the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man. You see it again and again and again in little phrases like this. And so, you, you know, we look at this, and I know you're here. Okay, we just read about a military battle, you know, more kings, more death, more people dying. You say, that's all fine and good, but what does all this stuff from the past have to do with me? Well, the Bible is using this circumstance, these circumstances, to teach us a message about God. And what is this message? The message is he's a God of amazing grace. That's the message. In chapter 20 of 1 Kings, a place you'd least expect it, we find that God is a God of amazing grace. Now, why do I say that? Well, if you've been paying attention the last couple of months, you know that Ahab has done more to provoke God's anger than any other king in Israel, 1 Kings 16. But in spite of that, God has repeatedly shown himself, shown Ahab that he is God. Baal is not God. He is God. He's shown that to Ahab again and again and again. He's shown that Ahab that he has the power to stop the rainfall. He has shown Ahab he has the power to resume the rainfall. He has shown Ahab he has the power to have fire fall from heaven. He's shown him all these things. But has Ahab been moved to repentance from any of this? Has he ever repented? Has he ever acknowledged that God is the Lord? He never has. He holds to the stubborn ways. He continues to provoke God. And yet, here again, the Lord gives him victory. And he provides top-secret intel, saying, Look, I know something you don't know. Get ready for battle in the spring. They're coming back after you. So be prepared. Now, how do we understand this? How do we explain these actions of God? Well, I think a hint to this is, uh, as I said in, chat, in verse 13, when the Lord says, I will deliver, I will give Aram into your hand, I'll give them into your hand. 
And we're talking about a gift here. We're talking about a gift. God is giving a victory to Ahab as a gift. It's a gift of God. And we, you know, Ahab doesn't, does Ahab seek the Lord concerning this battle when it starts? He doesn't seek God over this. He doesn't inquire of God about the battle. He never inquires of God about anything. This is a gift of God, this victory here. It's an act of pure grace. How do we explain this constant divine intervention of God, of God on behalf of Ahab? How do we explain this? We don't explain it with human reasoning. We can't. We have to say this. There's only thing, one conclusion we can come to. This is, an, this is the amazing grace of God in the life of this wicked sinner, a man who hates God with all his heart, a man who provokes God, a man who hates his prophets, who has them killed, doesn't bat an eye. How many times have we seen the grace of God already at work in the life of Ahab? Again and again. How many times have we, have we, have God, does God send a prophet to him? He sends Elijah to him. He sends this prophet to him. It's amazing. This is how the Lord works. He's the God of amazing grace. You know, he reaches out to sinners, doesn't he? He reaches out to sinners like Ahab, like you, like, like, like myself. Isn't that what he did for us who are saved? Didn't he reach out to us in our spiritually dead condition? We didn't deserve it at all. He reached out to us and he saved us. For by grace, Ephesians 2 8, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the what? The gift, right? Something God gives us. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ahab deserves nothing, nothing at all, neither do we, and yet the Lord pursues us. The Lord pursued Ahab. This is all about grace. Verses in here. You know, John Newton wrote the, the hymn Amazing Grace. And, he, you know, he was the captain of a slave trading ship for years. Vile sinner. He, in his writings, he later he refers back to his, his former life, and he says, I was a vile sinner. He says, and I quote, I was exceedingly wretched, he says. Another place, he says, I was a, I was a, uh, a terrible blasphemer. But the Lord intervened, didn't he? He came after John Newton. He came after him on that slave trading ship. He came after him, and he saved him by his grace. It's because of his grace. And though it took him years in that day of slave trading to give up the, this, the trade, nevertheless, he did it. And then later on, he joins Wilbur, William Wilberforce to end the slave trade in England. Now, how will that happen? It's only by the grace of God, the amazing grace of God. Otherwise, it would not have happened. Amazing grace. And then he wrote the words, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, right? He knew it. He knew it was God's grace and only God's grace. John Newton, by the grace of God, responded to the grace of God. And God saved him. Ahab, on the other hand, does not. He does not. Twice in this chapter, the prophet appeared to him. And, 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 and he said, I'm going to have, you're going to win. And this enemy would have devastated Ahab, but God gave him the victory. And then the Lord, the prophet, gives him a heads up. Syria is going to attack in the fall. Aram's going to attack in the, uh, not the fall, but the spring. Get ready for that. You know, the Lord has been good to Ahab. More than good to Ahab. And what's the response of Ahab to all this, by the way? Did you see the response of Ahab in these 22 verses? Does he give the Lord's praise and thanksgiving? Does he fall on his face before God and repent? Does he humble himself to God, before God? Does he cry out for forgiveness? Does he forsake his idolatry? There's no word of thanksgiving recorded at all. There's no word of repentance recorded here. There's no gratitude for what the Lord has done. There's no, there's no reaction at all. None. What the Lord did for him was totally undeserved, totally and completely undeserved, 
And yet Ahab never acknowledges that the Lord is God. He never does it in these verses. How about you? How about you and I? Uh, maybe you're in need of the grace of God and salvation tonight. Maybe you need him for salvation. Don't resist that grace, by the way. Don't resist. If you, maybe you're here tonight because, by the way, if you're here tonight hearing these words, it's the evidence of the grace of God in your life. You know, accept that grace without delay. Maybe you're a believer and God has shown you his grace again and again and again, but you've taken it for granted as if you're owed something from God. Don't ever do that. Don't ever take the grace of God for granted. Believers should always be filled with gratitude for what God has done. Always. Should be motivated by his grace. To to devote ourselves to the service of God. That should happen on a regular basis. Well, the first message of Ahab, to Ahab rather, concerns God's amazing grace. The second message concerns God's unlimited power. Second message concerns God's unlimited power. Verse 23, chapter 20. Now the servants of the king of Aram said to him, Their gods are gods of the mountains. Therefore they were stronger than we. But rather let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. Do this thing, remove the kings each from his place, and put captains in their place. And muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, a chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than them. And he listened to their voice and did so. At the turn of the year, spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Aramaeans and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. The sons of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went to meet them. And the sons of Israel encamped against, camped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Aramaeans filled the country. Then a man of God came near and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Aramaeans have said, The Lord is the God of the mountains, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord." So they camped one against another the seven days. And on the seventh day, the battle was joined. The sons of Israel killed the, of the Aramaeans, 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek and to the city, and the wall fell on 27,000 men who were left. And Ben-Hadad fled and came into, his, into the city into an inner chamber. Well, as we enter this section, it looks like the servants of Ben-Hadad are analyzing the former battle. They're thinking about, what's the reason why we were defeated anyway uh, against this smaller army of Israel? How in the world do we get defeated by these guys? Well, they come up with a religious reason for it. Here's why. It's because Israel's gods control mountainous regions. Obviously, they've been fight, fighting the mountainous regions. Here's the reason why uh, Israel's gods control the mountains. That's their specialty. And, so, and by the way, notice that Aram thinks that Israel is polytheistic, not monotheistic. Now, why would that be? Could it be because they saw them worshiping different gods? That could be. You know, it's very sad when we believers give impression, the wrong impression of God to unbelievers by the way we live and by the way we act and by the way we complain and by the way we respond to things. You know, what, what do unbelievers look at? What do they think about God when they see you? Ask yourself that question. Maybe you shouldn't ask yourself that question. Maybe I shouldn't ask myself that question. What do they see in God when they see me and how I act? Now, you need to understand that gods in the ancient Near East were specialty gods. They were gods of weather, right? Gods of fertility, gods of agriculture, and the list goes on and on like that. And the Aramean gods were local. They were specialized gods. So they naturally assume that Israel's gods are local and nationalized. They just cover a a certain geography, certain geographical area. So they conclude this, hey, 
if we fight on level ground on, on the plain, instead of in the mountains, and if we replace our drunken kings with, you know, real military leaders, maybe we can win the battle. We should be able to win. The gods of the mountains are going to be ruled out, and there's no need to worry about them. Now, look, look at verse 27. You can see from that verse that the disadvantage is, is for Israel. Israel's at a disadvantage once again. The Aramean army is as far as the eye can see. You can see them everywhere. There's no end of them. But in comparison, Israel's army is like two little flocks of goats. Like, how in the world can we even think about winning this battle? So unless there's another divine intervention, they're going to get slaughtered. But look what happens in verse 28. A man of God came near and spoke to the king of Israel, Ahab. And he said, Thus says the Lord, because the Aramaeans have said the Lord is the God of the mountains, but not the God of the valleys, therefore I'll give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I don't know if this is the same prophet as before. He's referred to as a man of God here whoever he is, but he too speaks, is spoken of as coming near Ahab. By the way, when you see that phrase, understand that it's ultimately God coming near Ahab. It's ultimately, it's the word of God coming near Ahab. Ahab is responsible. It means he's responsible to respond to this word, to respond to God. By the way, anytime that you hear the word of God, you're responsible to respond to his word. It's on you in that case. And so the message from God is this, since the Arameans are somewhat Arminian in their theology, then I'm going to give them into your hands. Again, the same word, give, translated deliver earlier. I'm going to give them this great multitude into your hands. You know, in other words, the, Arme- the Arameans believe, or the Arminians, you could say, same thing. They believe that God is not totally sovereign. He's only partially sovereign. Where did we hear that today before? morning right Mike's sermon God's not totally sovereign he's only partially sovereign he can control the mountains and God says I'm going to erase that heresy from their mind in short order when I get through with these guys he's going to show himself to be powerful in this military battle he's going to show that he's got unlimited power he's not limited because they're fighting in the mountains he's going to defeat them in the plains just like he did on the mountains and guess what the Aramaeans are not only going to be defeated in military battle, they're going to learn correct theology while they're at it. And so is Israel, by the way. They're going to learn it as well. And that phrase at the end of verse 28, you shall know that I am the Lord, the you there is plural in this case. So the intended target is not only Ahab, but all the nation of Israel. All of you guys are going to learn that I'm God. Well, what's the result? A, a, a smashing victory for Israel again. God comes through and just defeats them. So, so devastating that 100,000 Arameans are killed. And then 27,000, it says, a wall falls on these guys. Now, I don't know what happened with this 27,000 thing with the wall, okay? It doesn't say anything else. How do we explain it? I don't know. I explain it as an act of God, personally. And it doesn't say exactly what happened at all. I just take it that God defeated this enemy somehow. Ben-Hadad runs and finds a secret hiding place to get away which probably, my guess is, he had it prepared in advance anyway, possibly. The Arameans find out that the Lord is more than just the local mountain god who has a jurisdiction over a small area. That He's more than that. It's like the song says, he's got the what? The whole world in his hands, right? whole world. He's sovereign over all. His power is unlimited. You know, his power extends to the mountains, the valleys, the bodies of water, everywhere, right? 
He's, there's, no, there's no limit to the power of God. He's all-powerful. He's everywhere president wants. He's all-wise. He's all-knowing. Haven't we learned this in our theology in this church? Didn't we come to our systematic theology classes and learn this? I think this church knows that information pretty good, I would say. And yet, with all that theological knowledge packed in our brains, we still worry about paying our bills, don't we? We still wonder if God can work in certain people's lives to save them from their sin. We don't think that he can always. We still wonder about our future, don't we? Can we trust God with our future? We're not sure, oftentimes. Because we we limit God, don't we? We wonder, we're kind of like Arameans in in their theology sometimes. We limit God. We're kind of Arminian in our theology in that way. When it comes to everyday matters of practical living, many times we're like the Arameans. So we need to pray like Paul did in Ephesians 1.19, that we will know the surpassing greatness of his power, the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Well, that's two messages down, one to go. There's a message about God's amazing grace. There's a message here about God's unlimited power. And there's a third message that concerns God's severe judgment. God's severe judgment, verses 31 to 43, the end of the chapter. Let's read 31 to 34. Ben-Hadad is hiding out. His servants, in verse 31, say to him, Behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Better hope they are. Please let us put on sackcloth on our loins and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will save your life. So they girded sackcloth on their loins and put ropes on their heads. And came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Is he still alive? He is my brother. Now the men took this as an omen, and quickly catching his word, said, Your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him and took him up into the chariot. Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities which my fathers took from your father I will restore. You shall make streets for yourself in Damascus. As my father made in Samaria, Ahab said, and I will let you go with this covenant. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. Now the sackcloth and the ropes and all that are signs of absolute surrender. He's willing to surrender. Servants of Ben-Hadad go out and they basically Ben-Hadad is begging to live. He started out so proud, didn't he, by the way? And God humbled him quickly. And, they, and, and so they, they thought, well, Israelite kings are known for their showing mercy to their enemies. And uh, by the way, it comes true with Ahab. So he called by, do you see where, where Ahab says he's my brother? He ain't heavy, he's my brother, right? He's my brother, possibly meaning he's a fellow king. Maybe I should treat him as a fellow king. But by the way, calling a guy who's threatened to reduce you to rubble and has attacked you twice your brother, what's wrong with that picture? Just foolishness, right? The servant sees on that word brother when he says he's my brother, the servant's sees on that word, and they said, oh, yeah, your brother Ben-Hadad. We're like all one big happy family here. That, that guy, that brother. So he says, well, tell him to come on, and we'll talk about it. So they get him out of his hiding place, and Ben-Hadad, Ahab invites him into his chariot instead of killing him. Ben-Hadad then becomes the consummate politician, starts his politicking. He says this, oh, those cities my father's captured from you in Samaria when he fought you in, in 1 Kings 15, We'll restore all those, that territory to you. We'll give that back to you. And he says, you can make streets for yourself in Damascus, by which he means you can come up to my capital in Damascus, Syria, and you can build, they used to build shops in, in the streets, and they would have like a bazaar where they'd sell their goods to people. And you could boost the Israelite economy by doing that. We'll let you do that as well. 
And he, and he makes it sound so good. Let's just all, you know, live in peace together here, Ben Hadad says. Yeah, he's next on the line, right? So they make a covenant. The word here is used twice. It's the same word used to describe the Mosaic covenant or any covenant that God made with Israel. The two things I want you to see here. Number one, Adad, Ahab rather, is willing to make a covenant with a man who is bent on destroying Samaria. He's going to reduce it to rubble, he says. There's not going to be any dust left. And yet, he's willing to do that, but yet he will not keep the covenant that God made with Israel. You know the one that says, you shall have no other gods before me, that covenant? He won't agree to that covenant. The, the Lord loves Israel, protects Israel, wants to bless Israel. He won't, he won't keep that covenant, but he'll keep a covenant with a guy who's arrogant and believes that there's mountain gods. He's willing to keep that covenant. And then secondly, he lets his enemy go. Guess what? Ben-Hadad is a, is a national security risk for Israel. Just foolish move on his part. It appears to be an act of nobility, doesn't it? But in actuality, it's an act of stupidity on his part, letting his enemy go. He shows mercy to Ben-Hadad, but in doing so, he shows cruelty to the nation of Israel because he's, not, he's leaving them unprotected. And so it's a, mas- a matter of national security. By the way, he never batted an eye when Jezebel wanted to kill the prophets of Israel, prophets of God. But he's willing to, be, to take his own life in his hands by letting this enemy go. This guy's liable to come back and attack him again. Look at verse 35. A certain man of the sons of the prophets said to another by the word of the Lord, Please strike me. The man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not listened to the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have departed from me, a lion will kill you. It's the same word. Strike, actually, from the same word. I I want you to strike me. And if you don't, a lion's going to strike you. It's a play on words. And as soon as he did, as he had departed from there, a lion found him and killed him. Then he found another man and said, Please strike me. And the man struck him, wounding him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. As the king passed by, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went into the midst of the battle, and behold, a man turned aside and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If for any reason he is missing, then your life shall be for his life, or else you will pay a talent of silver. That's a lot of money. While your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hastily took the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him that he was one of the prophets. He said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I have devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life, and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and vexed and came to Samaria. But guess what happens here? Another prophet enters the picture. Only this time, the message is not so encouraging. It's actually a son of the prophet, but a prophet still in his own right. The prophet wants to be a living illustration to the king to make a point. So in order to do that, he's got to be physically injured. So it says he goes to another in the the Nazbi, a friend or a companion or a fellow prophet. He goes to a fellow prophet, and he says, strike me. But the friend says, I won't strike you, I'm assuming because he's his friend, right? And, but the penalty for that refusal is that a lion meets and strikes him and kills him. It's a play on words, as I said. If you don't strike me, a lion's going to strike you. Well, why this harshness? You, you look at that, why this harshness? It's, it's similar to the story in 1 Kings 13, where the prophet is disobedient to the word of the Lord and a lion kills him. Same thing. Both cases is because of what? Because the prophet refused to obey the word of God. Did you see that? Verse 35 
Uh, it says, a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to another, by the, word, by the word of the Lord, please strike me. This is the word of God. And in verse 36, the prophet says to the other prophet, you're going to die because you didn't listen to the word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. Not listening here, by the way, is the equivalent of not obeying. He's a hearer of the word, not a doer of it. Now, immediately we think this is unfair, right? This is, well, how could this happen, right? That's our first reaction. But the point being made here is that disobedience to God's word is not optional. It's not optional as far as God is concerned. He takes his word seriously. And the incident is pointing ahead to the judgment that's going to be rendered on the king of Israel. It's a, it's a, a judgment that's going to end in his death. One commentator, by the way, said this, if disobedient prophets cannot escape God's judgment, then disobedient kings certainly will not. And that's true. The prophet, after that incident, after the, the lion kills a guy, he asks another man, strike me. <laughs> well, if, I, if I'm this guy that he's asking now, I'm going to deliver a knockout punch to this guy because <laughs> I don't want to be eaten by a lion. And he, injury, he strikes him with such a great force, he, he injures him. So the prophet goes in disguise with the injury to the king, King Ahab. Another visitation from a prophet, by the way. And he makes up the story about, you know, I had to guard this POW, a prisoner of war, and uh, he escaped from me, he got away from me somehow, uh, and the guy told me that if he escaped from me, the penalty is going to either be death or i got to pay a large sum of money, which, by the way, no soldier could ever pay this large sum of money. They wouldn't, there's no way they could have done it. I just can't do either one of these. And so the king agreed with the judgment. He says, you're right, that's the right judgment. Your life for his, because you let him go, you're going to die. Then the prophet removes his bandage to illustrate the point, and he says, he gives him a message from God, verse 42. The prophet says to the king, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I have devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. Now the Lord's plan for, ben Hadad, for Ahab was to kill Ben-Hadad. That was his plan. He was devoted to destruction. That's the same phrase used in Joshua 6, 7, where Achan steals some of the things that were devoted to destruction, and he is... He's called the troubler of Israel. By the way, do you remember chapter uh, 18 where uh, Elijah met Ahab and Ahab said to him, you're the troubler of Israel? And Elijah said, no, I'm not the troubler. You're the troubler of Israel. You're the one causing trouble for Israel here. That's, it reminds us of that story. And Ben-Hadad is also devoted to destruction. And, and by the way, Ahab knew this information. According to this verse, Ahab knew he was devoted to destruction. And yet he disobeyed God's word, blatantly disobeys God's word, does it on purpose, and lets the enemy go. After all this grace God had extended to him, after all that of the Lord's goodness and mercy, after granting victory to him, after giving him intel that he's going to fight again in the spring, after all these things, Ahab refuses the grace of God. Just absolutely blatantly refuses it. By the way, the Bible says, whoever curses Israel shall be cursed. Ben-Hadad was cursed by God. So naturally, we expect, now, finally, at last, we expect Ahab to humble himself before God and repent, right? Wrong. Look at the last verse of the chapter. The last verse says, The king of Israel went away to his house sullen and vexed. The root idea of sullen is even rebellious. It's, uh, it's resentful. It is stubborn. It is, it is uh, sulking. It is brooding. He goes away like that, vexed. Is, has to do with an inner rage. It's, there's a storm brewing inside of Ahab. He's so frustrated and angry and resentful and all this. He goes home that way. 
So instead of sorrow over rejection of Yahweh and his constant disobedience, Ahab is like rather, rather like a child who, gets his, who didn't get his way. And so he's, I'm going to take my toys and go home. You know, he cries and he pouts and he whines. All this, there's no repentance. There's no humbling of himself before God. There is no acknowledgement that, that, that Yahweh is the Lord at all. None in this whole chapter. Now, how about you, you tonight? How, what's your response to the Lord? Do you acknowledge that Christ is Lord? Do you seriously acknowledge it? Do you, are you thankful for his amazing grace in your life? Or you just don't care? Or you just turn around and reject it? Do you trust in his unlimited power? Or do you think he can only do so much, but no more? He can only go so far and not go, to, go any farther. You know, for those of you who continue to reject Christ in the gospel, those who trample underfoot the blood of Christ and count it an unclean thing, those who refuse to come to Christ for salvation, there awaits a serious judgment a severe judgment of eternal hell because God is the God of severe judgment. For the believer, though, Christ has taken our judgment on the cross and he's given us salvation in Christ, but that does not excuse us from refri- refusing or not cooperating with the grace of God on a daily basis. What a shame it is when we take for granted that the Lord is working in our lives in all kinds of ways, in, in small ways. What a shame we take that for granted. The Lord is good, isn't he? He is the God of amazing grace. He is a God of unlimited power, but he's also just God. He's also a God of severe judgment. The Lord is God. That's the point of this whole thing. The Lord is God. As we go through this week, let's let our practice match our confession that the Lord is God. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful again tonight for your word. Pray that we would take it seriously. Help us to have a high view of God. Help us to see you, Lord, as, as you really are, trust in you. Or knowing that we can entrust ourselves to you completely, not worrying about things, not, not uh, fretting over things. We just pray you would work in our lives. Not only that, though, we pray we respond to your work in our lives. We just praise in Christ's name tonight. Amen.